Welcome to the Mission Matters Podcast, celebrating the people and initiatives that embody the Jesuit tradition of St. Louis University, celebrating what matters in the 200-year-old-plus mission that is St. Louis U, brought to you from the Office of Mission and Identity. So welcome back to Mission Matters. This is Virginia Herbers in the Office of Mission, and I am happy today to welcome Father Carlos Esparza, Jesuit Assistant Professor of Economics. Happy to have you here. Well, thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here, too. Yeah. So just tell us a little bit about yourself, about your background, how you got to SLU. Just talk to us. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I've been at SLU since August, so I've been here for about four months now new to St. Louis area in general. I visited SLU a couple of times in the past, but uh, I'm originally from Texas. I entered the Jesuits after going to college and working for a couple of years. Uh, so I'm originally from the Dallas area. I went to the Jesuit high school in Dallas. So that's how, that's how I came to know the Jesuits mm-hmm. through my Jesuit teachers. And so kind of starting there, that's kind of a little bit quick background there. But um, yeah, what brought me to SLU was I was in Austin doing my PhD in economics at the University of Texas. And I was finishing up my degree last year. And as part of the process, I went on the job market looking at different universities, uh, different schools. And schools then would interview me and see uh, we made a great fit. So there's a few Jesuit schools I looked at and some other places too. But with St. Louis uh, University, the good things about it were that there's a great young community of Jesuits here right now. Currently, I think at the university, there are around six tenure track, non-tenure Jesuits. So starting to get like a critical mass of young Jesuits here. So that was very attractive to know that I could come into this place. And then also the economics department was very supportive of my research. And so that also made it seem like it would be a great fit here. So that's in the end. And also being missioned by my provincial as a Jesuit. Uh, So all those three things coincided. And so that's how I ended up here at SLU. Okay, that leaves me with lots of questions. So what is your research in? First. Okay. So yeah, you know, my area of specialty is I was trained as a labor economist, but within that, my subfields were economics of education and economics of religion. And so a couple research projects I've been looking at and uh, or I've been working on in the last few years have been looking at the church and looking at Catholic education. In particular, my job market paper, or when I was in my dissertation, I looked at the sex abuse scandal from the early 2000s and how that impacted faith participation of Catholics, how it also affected the Catholic school system. So looking at attendance, looking at school closures. And then also what was very interesting is using the scandal as some sort of instrument. So this is all economics talk, econometric talk. So I'm with you so far. So using that, I also found effects on the general public in terms of health. So I related this to looking at how did people react to hearing the news of the scandal and specifically how that affect our mental health? And so one way to kind of measure that or get at it, I looked at different behavioral related mortality statistics. So there's in the economics and in health literature, there's something called deaths of despair. And so these are deaths that are either caused by overdose, alcoholic poisoning or drug poisoning, accidental overdose, suicides, or alcohol related liver disease. So looking at these outcomes, I also found there was effects uh, that the scandal led to increases in overdose mortality and the areas where the scandal was more prominent. So, wow, yeah, so it's, 
it's kind of a Debbie Downer topic uh, yeah. in some ways. Uh, that was not the reason why I got into it in the first place. <laughs> I think what drew me in that area was, well, first, my love of the church. Uh-huh. And I was able to get access to some data that had never been used before. And so when I originally was thinking about how I could use this data, I wanted to see what I could do with Catholic schools. And then, then I just started thinking, and this idea came up, trying to get a measure of the whole scandal. Mm-hmm. But hopefully with the data I have now, it's not just looking at these negative news, but also looking at the positive things the church brings in. And so one of the interesting things about this research, which I think causes some people to have concern or kind of take a step back, is to realize that the church, the faith, has an impact on people's lives beyond just what happens in the pews. And so how it affects schools, that's human capital in terms of economic speak, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and also health, and that's also human capital. And so when people heard these results, they were kind of somewhat skeptical because the church can't really have that much or wide effect. And so in some ways, although this is a negative thing, but at the same time, it's a positive thing to show that when social scientists, economists are actually looking into what affects people's lives, that religion, that faith actually matters and it's important. And so the bad news leads to bad things. We assume that good things could lead to good things. Sure. Potential uh, positive. Yeah, exactly. And so that's kind of where my research is heading now. Uh, so that's just one thing with the religion, with economics of education. Other things I've looked at is looking at how noise might disrupt student learning. So uh, one of the projects I'm working on with a co-author right now is looking at noise pollution. And so we're looking at incidents of either construction near schools also looking at other sources of noise pollution in your schools and how that might affect students' performance. Days of standardized testing, also their health, attendance, and also long-term potential outcomes and whether high school graduation and college attendance and their own career earnings. So that's a long-term project that I've been working on for the last year or so also. So I'm kind of mind-blown at the moment because everything you're describing, I'm trying as I'm listening to you to put it into the context of economics, and that's yeah. just something new to my mind. Yeah. So yeah, why does this fall in economics? I mean, economics of education, why it matters, people always ask that. Um, I think why people want to study education and what, and what goes into the education production function, what we put in hopefully brings out something that's good. Hopefully what we put into our students will bring out a student that is more uh, productive uh, in society that can contribute. And so long term, why do we care about student grades? It's because it's correlated or causally related with career earnings later on. So that's why it's a big thing of economics. Mm -hmm. So we know this is a really big investiture in human capital, and human capital is important to our production function. Just talking about economics. And religion, I think, you know, here we're seeing now that there are things in faith and religion that affects some of these things too in the long term. So this might be a little off the beaten track, but um, when I lived on the East Coast, I remember mm-hmm. when Cardinal O'Malley first got to the Boston Archdiocese and followed Cardinal Law. You know, it was right mm-hmm. in response to the, the whole debacle. Yeah. I remember going to Boston. I was visiting the city of Boston and thinking, oh, I want to pop into the cathedral. It mm-hmm. must be a grand, beautiful cathedral. Mm-hmm. So when I first went, this was maybe the late 2000s, and it was before Cardinal O'Malley was Cardinal O'Malley. He was just Archbishop O'Malley. And I walked into the cathedral, and it's like, I must have the wrong place, because the paint was peeling, and the windows were leaking, and the ceiling was filled with mold, and the carpet was ripped. I mean, it was Mm -hmm. in a shambles. And I thought, 
<laughs> this can't be the cathedral. <laughs> so I was kind of meandering around, and I found a custodian, and I said, basically said, what's the deal here? And he said, oh, this is the result of our archbishop. Mm-hmm. Archbishop O'Malley has been here for four years, and he refuses to spend a penny on the building. He will only invest in the people. Mm. And is in his mind, what we see in this building will help encourage us to rebuild even better. Mm-hmm. And I've always been struck by that, and somehow I'm finding it dovetailing with what you're describing. You know, this notion of there's a negative impact, but it can have a positive impact when you look at it in a different direction. Yeah, I think so, very much so. I think for me, when I've talked to uh, other colleagues, like, why are you studying this? So economists, mm-hmm. uh, some Jesuits, and you know, <laughs> and I said, well, for me, it's I feel like by bringing this to the forefront, it's a service to the church to see how much faith matters, but also how much damage it can do. And I think especially in the light of recent times, again, in 2018, with new allegations coming up and this new wave of finally public uh, disclosure, mm-hmm. finally we have some more transparency, which I think people deserve and we need as a church. I think for the church, we're at a time where we can finally take ownership of this. And if we do it well, we can help the world and society and take ownership of this fact too. Because child abuse happens throughout society. It's prevalent. It has been in institutions, but also some families. And so of the church, a church that we look up to and we have an ideal for it, if they can finally get hold of things, then I think that gives hope for the rest of the world in which we can bring a greater light to this whole tragedy. Amen to that. I think it's the spirit leading the church, maybe, mm-hmm. in this reason. Mm-hmm. It hurts. Yeah. It's painful, but it must be done. That's the way through, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. If you avoid pain, it doesn't make it go away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's it festers up in another way, yeah. That's right. And, man, did we see that with mm-hmm. the scandals. Yeah. Okay, so that's fascinating in terms of economics yeah. and your background and your um, fields and your yeah. areas of research. Now talk to us a little bit about the Jesuit side of things. So how has either your Jesuit spirituality mm-hmm. influenced your teaching or how has your field of expertise influenced the way you look at Jesuit spirituality? So a little bit more background okay. about myself. I was sent to study economics uh, a year after I was ordained a priest. At the point when the provincial asked me to think about doing a PhD in economics, I had kind of told him that I was interested in doing work with formation with the Jesuits. And he goes, well, that sounds great, but I think it would be great if he did a PhD in economics. Of course, we had been in discussion about this some years beforehand, so it wasn't out of the blue that this happened. But what really led me and where I felt God was directing me was the fact that this is a field where there's not much clergy in the studying this field. Um, there are Catholics definitely in this field. But it made me think there's a way in which maybe I can engage and encounter other people that I wouldn't otherwise. And hopefully at some level be able to share the beliefs of the church, share Catholic social teaching with economists, and at the same time bring the expertise from the field to the church. So kind of in the middle of sorts. And so that's one reason it really led me there. So I was sent to UT Austin to do my PhD. I was the only Jesuit in the city and diocese of Austin. Oh. Yeah. So 
There was no community there. The closest community we had, we had a community in Houston. So it also put me in a different perspective there. I was living uh, with other religious orders, living with the Holy Cross Brothers for two years. Um, so the Holy Cross Brothers have an institution in Austin, uh, St. Edwards University. The priests obviously run Notre Dame. So I got to know the priests and the brothers pretty well. So I lived with them for two years, and then I lived with another religious group, uh, the Paulist priests, mm-hmm. for three years. So I kind of had a great ecumenical experience uh, <laughs> while I was down in Austin. And then at the same time, doing interreligious dialogue with the academics, the agnostics, atheists, and whatever. So, so it was really a great time. And I think in that time, what really helped me wasn't necessarily the studies, but it was just the situation I was in. It led me to grow deeper into my identity as a Jesuit, because I had to. Because that's I was a lone Jesuit in the diocese, and at the same time, the diocese people in the diocese, the churches I helped out at, some diocesan priests, they would call me on to do things. Sure. And so, as a Jesuit, so I represented Ignatian charism and spirituality, and the Jesuit spirituality with that. So uh, I better have known what I, who I was and what I was Singly. doing. Yes. Because what people experienced in you, they attributed to all Jesuits. Exactly. <laughs> And the reason why they invited me, because they had a good experience with Jesuits in the prior years. So, right. so I was on the shoulders of giants and great people beforehand. So hopefully I did a good enough job. So when Jesuits go to Austin again, uh, <laughs> they'll be invited to give talks and uh, hear uh, confessions and give spiritual direction and whatnot. So, and if not, they know who to contact. Exactly. They know who to blame. And either to thank me or, you know. Right. <laughs> so I would say, how does so how did I find the Jesuit identity with what I do? I think, first and foremost, it came to me on those days when, dark days when I'm studying, and the first year or two of PhD studies were very difficult, especially the first year. It's probably working 78 hours a week. Grades and classes really don't mean anything, but you still get bad grades. What matters is if you pass your comprehensive exams and you're studying the whole time, and sometimes you, you know, you're there from you know, 10 a.m. to midnight uh, in the office, and you get out and it's dark. Um, and I just remember... I was like, I hate this amount of work. It was so analytical, so mathematical, which I enjoy, but at the same time, it was so frustrating at times when things were just not coming so easily. Mm-hmm. But I remember walking, when I parked my car in the parking lot and walking to the, to the economics building, I said, I'm not doing this for myself. I've been sent here on mission. My provincial has sent me here, and so when I'm doing this, I'm doing this for Jesus, and I'm doing this for the people of God. This is not about me. So several times I would have that go. I would remind myself, this is not about me. I'm doing this for the people of God as I walked. And if this is where God wants, it will happen. Mm-hmm. I'll put my best effort, and it will happen. Um, and, you know, God was there, obviously, through the process. And, you know, and as far as I could, this is what God wanted because I got through the program and everything went well. But I think there was an idea like of being sent, even though I was the only Jesuit in the diocese, and a difficult program. I just knew that God was present with me, and I knew that I had my provincial's blessing and mission from that. So I think that was a sense of just being, you know, I wasn't a missionary, of like the first Jesuits, but in some ways I was kind of on my own and kind of uh, representing the order at the same time knowing that I had the full backing and support spiritually, financially, of the Jesuit order when I was doing that. Yeah, I think that's a great insight into religious community, Mm -hmm. that where one is, Mm -hmm. all of you are. And there's both a blessing to that and a responsibility. Yes, yes, very yeah. much so. But as you're describing your response to God's call and the motivation to keep going, mm-hmm. knowing that this isn't initiated in you, this is a call for you, it made me realize that sometimes 
God calls and we answer and we can follow, but sometimes he kind of drags us kicking and screaming <laughs> <laughs> to yes. where we're supposed to be. And sometimes he drags us in a different way than we thought we Absolutely. were called to. Yeah. So who have been some of your role models in the society, whether they're long gone, like Ignatius, or yeah. whether they're more recent? Yeah, so I would say um, Ignatius Loyola, first and foremost, I think just his story I think what resonated with me, there were times in my life in formation where I didn't feel like I had it all together, where, you know, I had questions and doubts, and where I thought, like, I was nowhere near ready to be a priest along the way. I just looked at the autobiography of Ignatius and saw how many times he struggled, how many times where he thought that God was calling him in one direction, and he was yanked in the other way. And just just knowing that personal history of Ignatius uh, allowed me just to feel much more rooted in my call as a Jesuit, not just as a priest, but as a Jesuit. Another strong devotion I have of the Jesuits is St. Claude La Colombière. I took his name as a vow name when I was, took vows. For him, I just saw the model of his friendship with Jesus, but also his friendship with the sisters, uh, St. Margaret Mary Alacoc, and in terms of her trust in him and his spiritual direction, and also his also promotion of the devotion to the Sacred Heart. Mm-hmm. So that's another Jesuit in terms of which I have a strong devotion because of that. Current Jesuits, I would say uh, Pope Francis by far. Again, it's the way the Holy Spirit works. Seven years ago, eight years ago, when he was elected, I had known of him, but did not know much of him. Um, and so in just a short time, the Holy Spirit works, and he is now uh, the head of the church. And what he says, I take to heart. As a Jesuit, he calls me to a greater observance of our constitutions, a greater observance to what our vows entail, but also at the same time shows me what the Ignatian spirituality, Ignatian charism can do for the whole church, and not just for the church, but also for those outside of the church, those who are not believers, just the way he has a connection with so many people and the way he respects people and the way he engages and encounters people. So that's current Jesuit. And then, of course, there are plenty of Jesuits that most people probably do not know or they may know, uh, but my novice master, Billy Hewitt, to this day is still a great source of consolation for me and advice. But then also I've had other mentors uh, that have been very good to me in terms of Jesuits who are economists who have kind of mentored me through the field. So one uh, is a Jesuit priest up at Fordham. He's a professor of economics in the business school there. His name is Paul McNeilis. And so since the time I was studying in formation to be a priest, he helped me along, kind of direct me in the ways in which courses I should take or which programs I should look at when I was uh, applying for master's programs and eventually doctoral programs. And another priest, too, who is a former provincial of the Missouri province, Doug Marcoulier, who is now in Rome, is also has been very helpful for me, too. He used to be a professor of economics here at Chaffetz, so I've been following his shoes because he also did his Ph.D. studies at UT Austin. So it seems like everywhere I go, he's been there, and he has such a great reputation. So, again, as I said, I ride on the shoulders of giants. He is one of those, for sure. Very good. That's quite a bunch. All right, so I know... I'm curious, and I'm sure some people listening are curious, the Jesuit Formation Program. Mm -hmm. 
we hear terms thrown around all the time, tertianship and regency and experiment and all these different things in the novitiate. So can you just parse out for us what are all those different stages? Sure. So I'll just talk about it in my own life so you have an idea. Yep. I earned the Jesuits uh, two years after graduating from college. And so after working for two years, I entered the Jesuit order and I entered the novitiate. And so in the novitiate, I'm a novice, and I was there for two years, and I did my novitiate in Grand Coteau, Louisiana. And during that time, it's a time of prayer, time to learn how to pray, a time to pray, a time to do the spiritual exercises in Ignatius Loyola, which uh, are 30 days, uh, so a silent retreat for that time, a time to learn about the Society of Jesus through the Constitutions and its history, but also a time to actually do some of the works that the Society of Jesus sponsors. So to get an idea of what it might be like to be a Jesuit. So during my time as a novice, I did a stint at a high school for a few months. I worked in um, a school down in El Salvador, also in Belize. I uh, did hospital chaplaincy work. I visited nursing homes. Just did a whole sort of different things. It's smorgasbord. It's smorgasbord things. Kind of get you an idea of what is out there. So I did that. That was for two years. After two years... Uh, a Jesuit then will take his first vows. I've called to do those. Uh, so I took my vows in 2006. And then after a novitiate, you move on to first studies. So usually this is your philosophy studies. I went to uh, New York, to Fordham University, and did my philosophy studies there. So usually that's a three-year term. So I was in New York for three years. After first studies, that's when a man is assigned to do his regency. And so he'll be called a regent. And during the regency, that's when a Jesuit will be working at an apostolate, so another work for at least a couple of years to get an idea about the type of works that the Jesuits do. But also it gives a time for the Jesuit order to see how the man works on these apostolates. So it's a two-way street. You have to kind of see it on both sides to see, well, this man fit in the Society of Jesus, and the man says, does the Society of Jesus fit in my life? Right. It goes both ways. Like so, any relationship. Exactly. And so there are different apostle works that people do. Most of the time, it's usually in education, college, high school. But there's other things that Jesuits have done, work at parishes, retreat houses. I worked at a high school for my regency in Houston, Texas, Strake Jesuit. And I taught math there for three years. So after the regency, then a man will be called to do theology studies. So I went on to do my theology studies in California, in Berkeley. There's a Jesuit school of theology that's attached to Santa Clara University. That's also part of the, a bigger consortium of theology schools there, uh, the GTU, located right by Cal Berkeley's campus. So at one point, the Franciscans have a school there. The Dominicans have a school there. The Presbyterians have a school there. The Episcopalians have a school there. So a whole sort of uh, different Christian faiths have schools there. So you can take classes at all these different schools okay. to get a different perspective you want. So I did my theology studies there, did most of my classes at the Jesuit school, and I was ordained at the end of that time. So I got my degree, or was ordained after three years. I was ordained in New Orleans and Louisiana. So the province I entered into originally was a New Orleans province. Okay. So that's why I was ordained there in 2016. Still very fond memories of that day, although it's five, six years ago now. 2015, yeah. So it, it's gone by quickly, I would say. So usually, so that's the way to ordination. What differs the Jesuits from many different religious orders is the fact that Jesuits take their first vows, Jesuit scholastics 
who are trained to be priests will take their first vows, but they will not take final vows until after ordination. Most religious orders will take their final or make final vows before they're ordained a deacon. Um, and so I used to be the butt of many jokes in Austin from both the Paulists and Holy Cross that I was not in final vows, and many of them were in final vows before I ever was ordained. Uh, so Great. even though they're younger than me. I think that confuses a lot of people. How can you be ordained without final vows? Right. So when this, what Ignatius had envisioned was, yes, it's great that you want to be a priest and you want to be a Jesuit, but we're not really sure about how you'll be as a Jesuit priest. So we sure, you know, I think that the reason behind it is we've seen a man work in Regency, but we have not seen him work as a Jesuit priest. And so once a man's ordained a priest, he has some time of apostolic work. We see how his life as a priest is. And then at some point, usually within five years of being ordained, a man will be asked to go on to tertianship. And then during that time of tertianship, it will be the third year People call it the third year of the novitiate. So two years for the novitiate, this is the third year of formation, a probationary period, in which the man, again, will make the 30-day uh, retreat, the spiritual exercises, will read the constitutions, it'll be time, reflection, and prayer, and centering oneself back in the order. And so after uh, churchmanship, then the man uh, will be called uh, to take final vows. Okay. So where I'm at, because I went into doctoral studies, I'm kind of off where the typical schedule is. I was ordained one year, then went and did my doctoral studies for five years. I am now here working towards tenure at St. Louis University. I have not made tertianship. Okay. Tertianship, well, who knows when it'll be. Um, but, who, you know, final vows, who knows when that'll be either. Right. I used to also get a hard time from my friends, especially Holy Cross priests, about, I, you know, I may not be in final vows for at least another five, ten years. Who knows? So let me see if I got this. Novitiate, philosophy studies. Mm-hmm. Regency. Yes. Theological studies. Yeah. Ordination. Yes. And sometime after ordination, tertianship and final vows. Yes. So that's for the scholastic. For a brother, it's a little bit different. Oh, sure. Pretty much the same thing, theology studies, but sometime after theology studies, you'll do work and then you'll be called to tertianship. So. Okay. And the term scholastic just means someone who's not yet in... So I'm technically a scholastic still, too. So not yet in final, final vows. vows. So a, a scholastic is a person... Once they've taken vows, who said that they want to be ordained, mm-hmm. so you're on that track to be ordained, and now, right now, I'm an ordained scholastic. Got it. Okay. So. Oh, all these terms. And when does the experiment happen? Experiments happen <laughs> in the Vishit. Okay. So, yeah, you have several different experiments in the Vishit. So, one of my experiments was a high school experiment, okay. so that's why I taught uh, for a little bit. Another experiment, it was like which was called, like, you know, it's, it was kind of like a missionary experiment. So you were sent to uh, another country, and that's why I was sent to El Salvador and Belize and worked there. So Okay. Yeah. So experiment is just kind of another word for... Testing one's vocation, I would say. Okay, getting and a, a temporary yeah, mission placement. Yeah, exactly, getting experience. Okay. That is typical of the Jesuits. So it tests your vocation in some ways to see, again, is this the type of work you like, and see how you do in that situation too, both sides again. That sounds very much like Ignatius, that he would want to experiment with his guys. (laughs) Very much so. (laughs) Okay, so what else are we missing? What else would fill out the picture of what it means to be both called to the Society of Jesus a little bit in your experience and also being placed into a field in higher education that serves the church? Yeah, I think it's... um 
you know, as I think of my own, like where I'm at in my life and what I feel called to, it's an invitation for dialogue and working with others, working with others in my field, working with others that think similar to me, that may have the same background in faith, but also with people who think differently than I do, who also have different uh, faith backgrounds. Um, I found my time at UT Austin very fruitful for that reason. Uh, when just having the different uh, breadth of experiences with people. I, it was very interesting when I first got to UT Austin, there are a couple of Catholics in the department, other students, and they were telling me, well, this place, you know, UT is kind of like a godless place, mm-hmm. especially this department. You know, this, this professor might be, you know, biased against Christians. And so I was like, okay, you know, but they knew I was a priest. You know, everyone in the department knew I was a priest, and they were very friendly to me. It's like, well, I haven't had that experience yet. Mm-hmm. Well, that's because, you know, they haven't, you haven't really got to know them yet. I would know when the department would have events. Some professors, the ones that were accused of being godless, the ones who were being accused of being anti-Christian, would come to me and come talk to me about life questions. Wow. They wanted to ask me about my experience of God because they themselves had experiences. They maybe were anti-organized religion at the time, but they were raised in a faith, and they were seriously... Searching. Searching, exactly. Mm -hmm. And so I think as a priest in a field that usually doesn't have that, I was able to reach and encounter people that I would never have had otherwise. Mm-hmm. And I think they were able to have an experience of the church that they would never have had otherwise too. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think for me, that's one of the things that I enjoy. I really want to be able to be a representative of the faith and be able to be a partner and when someone has questions they can talk about things and and we can be able to discuss things without having any agenda behind it and i've had that experience already here at slew with some of the faculty here so i found that you know i, I really enjoy that i also found that among my colleagues my the other uh grad students there the same thing i still i laugh at the one one person who would tell me he was an atheist an about atheist always seemed when we had an event would always come to me and talk to me about god no one else would talk to me about God, but this guy would always right. talk to me about God. It's like, there's something else going on. I, you know, I, I, you may not be an atheist, you know, or, right. you know, maybe you're an agnostic. Let's move on. Let's, we can move you a little farther ahead in this. Or maybe, you know, there's something deep down, you know. But I always uh, found it very interesting that one person who was like, I'm anti-God, came and always wanted to talk about God. So as a Jesuit, I think I've been entrusted with a position in this department, in this field, in which I uh, am able to not only excel hopefully excel in the field, but also be able to meet people where they are and be able to share the truth with them, share uh, the truth that we know as Jesus Christ in a way that maybe would not necessarily be uh, feasible otherwise. Yes, and living proof that Ignatius was right when he said we can seek and find God in all things. Amen. Amen. And I would say, you know, um, you know, that's the one thing as a Jesuit I've learned it's not finding God in all things. It's not necessarily us, but I also would say the reverse is all true. God finds us always, too. Oh, that's a wonderful yeah. thing. And so that's kind of one lesson I've learned as a Jesuit in my life, where I thought God was not present, God made himself known, and God found me there. Amazing. Well, thank you, Father Carlos, yeah. for your time with us today. And I'm guessing you might get from our listeners, you might get an email or two. <laughs> well, wonderful. Happy to see those and answer them any way I can. So 
Thank you so much. Okay, thank you, Virginia. And for everyone listening, thank you for being with us. Don't forget to follow us on social media at SLU Jesuit Mission in Instagram and Facebook. And if you know of a colleague who is living the mission quietly but out loud and seems to be somehow hidden in plain sight, please contact us in the Office of Mission and Identity. So until next time, let's remember, especially in this Ignatian year, that we are one SLU where mission matters. You can engage the mission intentionally here at SLU, and you can encounter it randomly. But good luck graduating without ever touching it in some way. God bless everyone.